This is an ABC podcast. It's easy to think in exalted terms about fashion. Fantastical catwalk creations that spark the imagination and eventually shape the clothing designs that you and I buy and wear. But fashion is also an accelerator of change, constantly purging and restocking the warehouses, retail outlets and wardrobes of the world. Not to mention the sweatshops where much of today's apparel is actually made. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Today on the program, we'll look at recent developments in the industry, including research into so-called biodiverse fabrics and the rise of virtual fashion. But let's start with the arrival of a new online fashion giant out of China, one most of you have probably never heard of. It's called Shein. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to my channel. It is that time again. You guys know we love to test out Shein clothing. So today we are doing a little Shein haul. Well, it's actually a huge Shein haul. I have... <laughs> <laughs> like a crazy amount of clothes to try on to make this video a little fun while I was on the site. Now, Shein isn't just an example of fast fashion. It's fast fashion on steroids. Megan Tobin is a reporter with Rest of the World, a non-profit tech-focused journalism outlet based in New York. She and colleague Louise Matsakis spent six months investigating this new ecosystem. Megan Tobin. Shein is one of the largest fashion companies in the world right now. And last year, I believe in June, they surpassed Zara and H&M combined for the largest share of the fast fashion market in the United States. So they don't cater, even though they're headquartered in China, they don't cater to Chinese shoppers. It's entirely catering to shoppers abroad. And Shein is cutting out a lot of the aspects of traditional shopping. There's no fitting rooms. There's no brick-and-mortar stores. It's really just an app offering thousands of options, new options every day. And they're able to do that by coordinating thousands of suppliers inside China. So it functions almost like a marketplace, more like Amazon than like a traditional brick-and-mortar brand. And Louise, what can you tell us about the business model that they've adopted and why they've adopted that particular model? So I think what's different about Xi'an is that instead of buying factories, they're opening factories in China. What they do is they work with thousands of suppliers in different parts of the country, and it adds them to this software platform. And what the software platform does is it basically allows Xi'an to collect data and direct its suppliers and tell them what to make. So for example, they might launch, let's say, you know, a pair of camo print leggings on Shein and they'll watch to see how many customers purchase it, how quickly they're purchasing it, you know, what parts of the world they're purchasing it in. And then it can immediately tell suppliers to ramp up production of that product if it's selling well. So they're able to sort of act as this software intermediary between Chinese clothing factories and consumers in other parts of the world. And it's all about speed, isn't it? A very quick response to styles and to consumer interest is what underpins it. Definitely. One of the ways they're able to do that is they order, you know, make very kind of short orders, quick orders, and 
small numbers from the suppliers that they're working with. And if something starts to sell really well, they can ramp up production on that particular item really quickly. And that enables the company to be responsive to trends on social media, on TikTok, on Instagram, you know, far faster than traditional fast fashion like Zara or H&M, which are looking to respond to runway trends. Instead, we're seeing Shein can respond to the internet. So, Louise, how many new products, if you like, new styles are added each day to the app? Just give us a a bit of a dimension of that. So Shein adds thousands of different products to its platform each day. And I think I should clarify that they're not making thousands of each one of those items, right? So what they're doing is they're actually using each one of those items to conduct a mini experiment. So they're trying to see what kinds of products are going to resonate with consumers. And that's a very different model from a traditional fashion company, which, you know, might create like a collection every season, right? And it's based on runway trends or, you know, it's based on sort of the tastes of the designers of that brand, where Shein instead is operating based on data. I think what made Shein so successful so quickly is that First of all, they know sort of like the Chinese garment producing industry much better than any Western company would ever be able to, right? They have these relationships with suppliers. They know what they want. They pay them on time. Um, And I think the second thing that Shein learned from China is how to make an amazing e-commerce app. They have this point system where you can sort of earn Shein credit for leaving reviews and interacting with different aspects of their platform. And I think that that's a really different model than what Western e-commerce companies have done, which is often to try and make the shopping experience as quick and seamless as possible, right? Like you don't want to linger on the Amazon app, right? The idea is to sort of fill your car, get what you need and move on with your life. Whereas I think that companies like Shein and and inside China, companies like Alibaba and Pinduoduo have tried to sort of make shopping fun. So they've made it something that you want to linger on, something that involves getting your friends to participate with you. And I think that that was something that was very new for a lot of Western consumers. So it's not really just about selling clothes, selling product, is it? It's part of this whole gamified approach that we have to the online world at the moment. It's absolutely about engagement, sustaining engagement on the app and kind of keeping people in an infinite scroll. I mean, it's extremely effective. You mentioned big data, Louise. The role of big data, I mean, that is central to all of this, isn't it? Because you can only make those rapid decisions about what products to make, what are going to sell, if you're looking at data in real time. Exactly. Yeah. Data is really crucial to how Shein operates. I think that often when people think about fashion, they think about, you know, taste, Anna Wintour, Vogue, right? Like, you know, style and sort of like that je ne sais quoi. Whereas Shein went a completely different way and said, we just want hard kind of cold data about trends that consumers are watching. And we want to see, you know, what are people interested in buying? So, you know, that affords sort of endless variety. And a lot of the clothes that Shein sells are really sort of technically unsophisticated, right? Like simple t-shirts made out of synthetic fabrics, leggings, like really simple jeans. Like you're not seeing sort of like really high-end craftsmanship or innovative designs here because it's a, you know, it's a numbers game, right? Like they want to know what they can sell quickly and what they can sell to the biggest audience possible. And are they likely to be a one-off or are we starting to see other companies adopting their strategies and adopting their method? Megan Tobin, your thoughts? We're absolutely seeing competitors to Shein already. For example, there's a, a similar app called Cider and they've received backing from one of the largest VCs in the world, Anderson Horowitz, 
And they said, you know, in their memo about investing in CIDR that one of the things that was appealing to them is the marketplace model. And CIDR similarly, you know, does short order small amounts at a time to, in order to be trend responsive. And they also say it helps them minimize waste and, and have more sustainability in their supply chain. And another thing we're seeing is, you know, I mentioned earlier that Shein has kind of knocked off model of e-commerce and a model of shopping that was pioneered on Chinese e-commerce platforms, particularly like Taobao and other platforms that are backed by Alibaba. And now that we've seen the success of Shein and the outside of China, Alibaba is actually launching a competitor platform as well called Ali Likes. And then it looks almost exactly like Shein in, in terms of interface and the type of products. And um, it'll be interesting to see whether that takes off and whether Alibaba, you know, continues to invest in it. So where is this likely to take us? What does this mean for the future of what we think of as fashion? I think that the future definitely includes other companies like Shein, right? Like they've proven to be super successful. And if there's anything I've learned as a tech reporter, it's that venture capitalists kind of act like flies and they will, you know, go to the the light. They act like fireflies. They'll go, they'll go to the next thing that's shining a light. So I think that there's a lot of interest in sort of making the next Shein right now. But I think that it raises a lot of concerns about the environment and about the labor conditions of the people who are making these products for sure. And look, picking up on that point, what do we know about the way in which the the garments are being made? How, how does this approach influence the production of garments and, and workers' rights? We worked on this story with a co-reporter in China, Wenxi Chen. She's a freelance journalist based in Beijing. And she spoke with Xi'an supplier, as well as a number of workers in the garment industry in China. And, you know, what she heard from them is, on one hand, workers in China's garment industry are extremely impressed with Xi'an. They pay well on time, and they're really getting China's name out there in in an industry that the government is prioritizing. They think of it as cross-border e-commerce or exporting, you know, clothes made in China abroad. On the other hand, what we hear is the garment industry is already extremely overworked. Workers are working very long hours and they report complaints similar to what we hear from workers in Amazon warehouses. They're walking miles every day and picking up heavy loads. And one worker told Wensi that pretty much impossible for their factory to take on any more overtime even. And so they'd have to hire new workers in order to do that. So that's not to say that the labor practices are egregious in every single situation, but when you're uniting literally thousands of factories behind your supply chain, it's very difficult to do due diligence across all of them. Megan Tobin, a reporter with Rest of World, and before her, Louise Matsakis, who now works for NBC News. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. What is the real cost of an item of clothing? So you know you can go into stores now and buy a $5 T-shirt. And sometimes it's even less than that. And that's not the cost, right? Like it's not only, you know, we're not factoring in what's gone into making that piece of clothing. So the water that was used to grow the cotton, the people power that was used in the, that we used in the factory, if we're thinking about the energy use, greenhouse gas consumption, all of that, I feel we've just lost our way a little bit and forgotten about the story. Julie Bolton from Monash University's Sustainability Development Institute. 
since 2000, clothing production has increased exponentially. I think it's 60% faster than what it was in 2000. In 2014, for the first time in the world, the number of garments produced annually hit 100 billion and the number's only gone up since then. So that's 100 billion items of clothing that are being put out into the world. And again, when you stop and think about that and go, hang on, all of the processes that have gone into making those items of clothing, that's a lot of clothing we're putting out there. And we know that in Australia that we are discarding around 6,000 kilograms of textiles every 10 minutes. And that's textiles, so that's not just clothing, but we are we're really ramping up how much we're using and how much we're throwing out at the other end. It's huge. It's, it's really huge. You know, the number of garments purchased per capita, again, this is around the world between 2000 and 2014, has increased by 60%. And I think, I just, I think we've all got to take a breath, right? We need to stop and go, maybe that's not what we should be doing. And what was it about the turn of the century that uh, changed people's habits, that that saw this incredible growth in the fashion industry? So that's something I really want to research in more detail. I want to know, like, in 2000, where all of a sudden, you know, were we that little bit wealthier and we had more disposable income? Was it that, and I do know this for a fact, that clothing prices just haven't increased, you know, the ways, for example, housing prices have. And so if clothing prices are remaining at that level and we have as a society got a little bit wealthier and we're a little bit even further removed from where our clothing is made from, especially in Australia where we don't manufacture most of our clothing, maybe all of those things just came together and and retailers really cottoned on to the fact that you could produce and you could keep producing and you could keep selling items of clothing. And so they're producing more and more and more and we're consuming more and more and more. And all of that happened and started to happen around 2000. I, I read somewhere once that someone said, if we could go back to 2000 and just consume at the rate that we consumed at in 2000 and produce at that rate, we would be a lot better off. And that's only 20 years ago. Like I just, you know, something's happened, right? Where we've just lost our way in producing and consuming. 2000 is also a significant date in terms of the growth of, of China as an economic power, as a, as a manufacturer. And of course, that sort of roughly marks the beginning of the digital era. Are both of those factors that could possibly help explain the change? I don't know, Anthony. Like, I don't think it's any one thing. I think it's a combination of things. And I think digitally... It is easy to purchase online, isn't it? It's it's relatively easy to purchase online and there are a lot of ads thrown at you all the time online. And so perhaps there is that thing where people just go, well, I can just purchase a few more things. I can get it. It might not be exactly right, but that's okay because I only paid, you know, $5, $10 for it. So I might wear it once or twice and then get rid of it. So, and then I can purchase again and stuff just gets delivered to my door. Maybe all of that has played into it, but what it's not all doom and gloom. Like what is totally exciting is that it is starting to shift. Like it is definitely starting to change. Like Julie Bolton, Geraldine Worry is keen to remain optimistic. She's a London-based fashion futurist and designer, and Geraldine sees promising signs in the way major designers and companies are starting to show a greater interest in the use of what are called biomaterials or biofabrics. 
Biomaterials are generally materials that are either grown in the lab or traditionally they were more used in the medical field. And usually they're grown with bacteria or bacteria that helps produce a type of cellulose. Susan Lee, who's a biocouture designer, she created the first type of microbial manufacturing and biofabrication process that essentially creates mushrooms and creates thereby the bacteria forms into a material that you can actually make a garment out of. And so today, how this is manifesting is that we're experiencing the sort of rising trend of, for example, mushroom leather. And some of them are just incredibly luxurious and you have leathers made from apple skin or waste made from, the, for example, the apple production industry. So there's a lot to be said about the different materials coming up in biomaterials and fashion. How has the fashion industry itself, how has its attitude toward biomaterials, how has that changed over the past decade, say? It's changed dramatically. I remember back in the early 2010s or 2013 developing two reports, actually. One was called Modesty Solutions and the other one was called Refuge. And I was talking about lamps powered by bacteria or shoe sole development that had been developed by a designer. And basically this shoe cell could regenerate itself, which is incredibly important for the footwear industry when shoes get worn out. And at the time, this was seen as something very niche, very emerging. It was seen as a type of obscure trend and something that people were tracking out of curiosity and almost to see if, if it was going to even pick up at all. And now some of the, the biggest industry players from Sal McCartney to MS, who's a leader in the luxury industry, Adidas, you name it. So many leaders are investing heavily in these materials because although some of the materials made from bacteria have some irregularities because uh, the behavior of bacteria can be difficult to control, those things are changing. The production process is becoming more and more sophisticated, and it's only a matter of time before we'll be able to really scale these types of materials. And there's an environmental aspect to all of this, isn't there? Because biomaterials are being seen as being less destructive on the environment. Yes, and one of the materials that's also being explored is, for example, algae, which we know has great potential in not just the fact that it grows one meter a day for algae that's grown in the ocean, but also for its capacity to absorb carbon. And there's really great potential and there's a real openness to it because also obviously the climate crisis and the sustainability solutions that are being put forth to reduce the fashion industry's carbon footprint and all of the different ways it's become very toxic and incompatible with the earth. Uh, there's, there's a growing consciousness of the way we need to develop new materials. It's, it's a new material age, really. And maybe it's not at scale yet or completely reached the mainstream, but as a forecaster who understands the type of cycles of innovation, I think this is what's next. And do these types of materials, do they break down more effectively once they go into waste? Yes, that's the whole point of them really is that they are biodegradable. Some of them could potentially be reused. That is the whole point to try and create a, a zero waste system. Zero waste is something I think is a little bit controversial to claim at the moment, but it's the objective, either zero waste or circular. 
I mean, who knows, perhaps in the future, you might even be able to eat the clothes you wear or the packaging that you use for your clothing. Which is a novel idea, but I suspect not a prospect that many of us will be able to stomach. Now, a greater use of biomaterials won't do anything to curb hyperconsumption, but it could benefit our health and the health of the planet by reducing our reliance on synthetics. As long as the biomaterials are long-lasting, that is. For the leathers, I think they're quite durable. There's a lot of testing being done, and obviously we're still in the very early stages. But if you compare the durability to, for example, a garment made of polyester that, especially if it's knitted, very often starts shedding fiber and sheds tremendously, the point is that when it reaches its end of life, it will not hurt the planet. And so just because it's organic doesn't mean it's not durable. These organic materials are actually being used also to manufacture cement. There are new types of cement because the the building industry is also incredibly polluting that are actually derived from uh, shells and the waste byproduct of the, the fishing industry. So I think that kind of says a lot about durability of these materials. And the whole point also of this new material age is that we as a human collective who likes to purchase fashion, we may need to change some of our standards in terms of expecting everything to look exactly the same. Um, If you look at some of the batch production with some of the recycled goods, the speckling of a shoe sole that's made from different colors of recycled materials might have variations. Not every single shoe is the same. And in that sense, we're moving away from a certain type of aesthetic that was produced during the Industrial Revolution and moving towards perhaps an era where we have a different sense of what perfection means. And so in that sense, I think the biomaterials, it's give and take at the moment. Obviously, they're still in development, but I think it's its only a matter of time and seeing. I just came back from the Waste Age exhibition that was held in London, where I based at the Design Museum. And it's absolutely incredible, all of the biomaterials that are being developed in some of the industries that need the most. Fashion futurist Geraldine Worry. Another designer with a non-conventional take on the future of the clothing industry is Brad Morris, who's pursuing a trend for fashion you don't so much wear as seem to wear. Brad is the founder of a startup company called Miami Studio. So Miami is the world's first tech luxe digital fashion house. We operate at the intersection of digital technology and luxury fashion. We, as a company, trade globally in pixels rather than textiles through our metaverse marketplace and through our digital fashion pieces. And what that all means is that the sorts of outfits or garments you buy from Mr Morris's fashion house aren't real in the sense that they're not made with needle and thread. They don't exist in the physical world, only online, on social media. Digital fashion is really there to unlock the boundless and borderless potential of digital fashion as a new medium for self-expression, as well as sort of community belonging. So the notion of digital fashion really is to have pieces that you can wear in different environments. So whether that be something as simple as a Zoom call or a Google Hangout through to social media where you're changing your lenses, you know, even extending into gaming environments, for example, where we all know gaming skins where you're running around Call of Duty 
or Fortnite, the ability to be able to choose and personalize your appearance in those environments. And going to the Zoom example, how would that work? So very much in the same way that you can change your backdrop or your background, you'll be able to access your digital wardrobe based on the occasion. So let's say, for example, you've got a very formal meeting. You may want to switch out your clothes into more sort of formal attire through to those more relaxed occasions where you might want to change out your garments for something else. So it's really just about having the flexibility and really utility of digital fashion to meet the needs of the holder or the owner of digital fashion. So they're digital, but they need to look and feel or move like a real garments, don't they? Completely. And I think that's the challenge with digital fashion. And one of the reasons why, as a company, we position ourselves as tech lux. We're looking to create hyper-realistic clothing that obviously matches your person, but then also that, that sort of elevates things beyond just what you can do in the physical world. So you know, not only being able to have clothes that look hyper-realistic, but that also go that stage further, imbuing kind of um, storytelling into the garments to project who you are, what you stand for, having that additional layer of creativity in ways that haven't been seen before. Who do you see as the main customer base for digital garments? So the core audience is a millennial audience between 18 to 44. You have those people that are still buy digital fashion from a, a crypto or collectible perspective. So people that in much the same way in the physical sense, you have people that would buy trainers that they never wear and they store and collect them like trading cards. You have people that are inspired by digital fashion in that regard. But then also you have that core audience that want to physically wear those clothes. And that's in you know those gaming environments or social environments as well. So our core audience are kind of that millennial generation. So digital fashion is the way of the future, according to Brad Morris. But of course he would say that. Still, as good as your virtual clothes might be in the digital realm, unless the laws around public nudity change quite substantially, you're still going to need something physically substantive for streetwear. Brad Morris's suggestion is a bit of mix and match. We see certainly a connection with both physical and, and digital fashion. So you'll be able to own a digital counterpart or a digital twin to physical fashion. But you'll also, if you own the digital piece, you'll have the ability to be able to create the physical piece as well. So those two things are inextricably linked. They won't be kind of an either or. It'll be based on environment and use case or application, if you like. Waste and sustainability are big issues when we talk about modern fashion and fashion trends. What will the influence of digital fashion be on sustainability, for instance? Well, I think digital clothing allows everyone to kind of quench their fashion thirst, if you like, whilst also drastically reducing the environmental impact of the fashion industry. So when you think about, I guess, tech lux or, or digital fashion, you reduce the carbon footprint that's generated during the design and sampling innovation process, if you like. So the early phase of fashion process, but you also start to reduce the production costs and time to market as well. So there are benefits in that regard. And you're creating pieces that have their use case linked to the application that we're talking about. So rather than buying a piece of fast fashion, fashion that you may wear in a, a social media lens once, actually you buy the digital piece that you can wear in the digital lens once and you remove the carbon footprint altogether. So it's really about identifying why we need the clothes that we buy and then off the back of that, 
deciding whether it's digital or a physical piece that we need. So using the example of Zoom, using the example of social media, you know, why do we need physical versions of our clothing in those online spaces? And if we can bring the quality of our garments up to spec, the ability for us to wear, for example, a tracksuit, but then virtually be able to map a suit or a dress or whatever that might be to our person, you know, we can really overcome those environmental challenges of mass production and really, you know, think about how we can avoid landfill at every interaction. And just finally, some of the, the big brands in fashion are now really starting to get interested in this, aren't they? They are. So we saw the likes of Gucci launching the Virtual 25, which was a sneaker drop that was only available as a digital fashion piece. We've seen Burberry, Louis Vuitton, even most recently Adidas enter digital fashion through collaborations. So there is this wave of adoption from fashion houses, as well as there being native Web3 brands that are also beginning to launch, much like Miami, offering different choices for people when it comes to their digital identity and the ability to wear different clothes that suit them. A passion for fashion. Brad Morris there from Miami Studio. We also heard today from designer and futurist Geraldine Worry, Julie Bolton from Macquarie University, Megan Tobin, a reporter with Rest of World, and Louise Matsakis of NBC News. The producer for today's edition of Future Tense was Edwina Stott. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.